0: I'm your host, Meg Wolitzer, but this week I'm out at my barbecue, roasting the corn, flipping the hot dogs, and soaking up the last rays of summer. So I'm turning things over to Roxanne Gay for a great food-themed show. Bon Appetit.
1: This week on Selected Shorts, recipes for rice, chicken with gravy, and a roast so good it might keep you out of jail. That's right. This week's fiction offers something for every occasion with me, your guest host and hash slinger, Roxanne Gay. Stay with us. I am Roxanne Gay, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I am a writer myself, and you may know me from books including Bad Feminist and the short story collections Aiti and Difficult Women. I've also written a memoir, Hunger, and I am a podcaster. I co-host Here to Slay with Tressie McMillan Cottom. I've hosted Selected Shorts in the past. This time, I'm pleased to be bringing you a program about something that connects us just as much as writing does, food. We'll get some monstrous menus, a family story told through meals, and Roald Dahl's classic tale about a desperate housewife. First, the late New Yorker humor writer Donald Barthelme was a master of taking things to extremes, and he's pulled out all the stops in Three Great Meals, penned, for reasons that will become obvious, under the pseudonym William White. Imagine James Beard as a paramilitarist, and you might grasp the persona Barthelme has created for this story. In it, he tells you how to prepare breakfast— lunch, and dinner from a terrifying medley of fast food and low-end canned goods. The very clever Nate Cordry is great at sounding clueless. He's known for his work on the television series Harry's Law and Mom and appearances on Law & Order Criminal Intent, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, and The Daily Show, among others. Here he is with Three Great Meals.
2: In this article, I am going to tell you how to make three great meals using standard ingredients. By standard ingredients, I mean things that can be found in any supermarket from one end of the country to the other. I am going to name names and tell you what brands I use, not because I'm in the pay of these particular brands or have any fiduciary relation to them, but because they're the ones I use daily and ones that I have found work well, day in and day out. In each case, you will notice that the meal is geared to the person who does not have much time to screw around, but at the same time wants extra good results. Something a little better than what you would get if you just use these fine products straight, without informed guidance or nuance. It is true, that all of these great meals fall roughly under the rubric, Southern cooking. But I stress that the ingredients have nationwide distribution, for the most part, and that because something has its origins in the South, doesn't automatically mean that it can be dismissed as low rent or beneath contempt. An open mind towards the cuisines of various regions is the first hallmark of the educable palate. A great breakfast. For the great breakfast, we assume that the night before, you had gone out and bought eight to 10 pieces of Popeyes fried chicken at the drive-in window of your local Popeyes, together with six to eight Popeyes biscuits. Now, I am not sure that Popeyes is entirely national, but it is widely found throughout the South, which makes it national enough for our purposes. Colonel Sanders may be substituted if you wish. The average family will have eaten about seven of the chicken pieces and maybe four of the biscuits during the original meal, leaving you with a wealth of residue for the great breakfast. Upon awaking, take one package McCormick chicken gravy mix and place it in a saucepan, adding one half can of Swanson's clear chicken broth. This is the first subtlety. The directions for the gravy mix suggest cold water. By adding Swanson's Chicken Broth, you get a gravy that is far richer. You also double your expense, but as the gravy mix is typically about 63 cents a package, and the broth about 49 cents a can, it's not that much. Next, chop a fresh onion, very fine. Very, very fine. About two tablespoons worth. Throw this in the gravy. You may then add a splash of soya ve, bowl of white wine, and raise heat to boil off the alcohol. If your religious convictions do not permit the use of alcohol in your breakfast, it may be omitted, but what do you do when you get to turtle soup? Leave out the sherry? While the gravy is simmering, take the leftover Popeyes biscuits and split them, placing them in a small container and a 425 degree oven for approximately eight minutes. Now strip chicken from leftover Popeyes pieces and add to gravy, being careful to not include the heavy, crispy skin that was your motivation for getting the Popeyes chicken in the first place. (laughs) Then remove biscuits from oven, ladle gravy over them, and sprinkle with Spice Island's thyme, taking care to crush thyme between thumb and forefinger to release flavor. The result Is a chicken with dumplings that cannot be equaled this side of that tin roof place on a dirt road outside of talladega alabama that we've all heard of but no one has ever found (laughs) the master stroke here is of course the onion an unusual lunch this kind of lunch is possible when the green skinned tomatillo is in season luckily the green-skinned tomatillo is always in season in the canned version put out a Herdes, which also includes chilies. Take a can of Gebhardt tamales and place in a small oven-going vessel. <laughs> Layer with chopped onion. Add one can Herdes salsa verde tomatillos. Cover with craft shredded sharp cheddar which is available in a resealable plastic bag for about $2.09 for 10 ounces. Use about one-third of the bag to top the dish, spraying the cheese smoothly around with your hand. Bake in 425 degree oven for 15 minutes. In the more developed parts of the country, there will be locally produced tamales, usually differentiated as to hot or mild, made by gifted indigenous personnel. And these can be substituted for the Gebhardt variety. Renowned and Rotel brands of tomatoes and chilies can also be used. Both are excellent, although not green. This lunch has a strong Mexican flavor due to the use of ingredients associated with Mexico. (laughs) Although it is not in any sense authentic, it is unusual. (laughs) Superb dinner for 60. You probably did not know that a superb dinner for 60 could be made out of canned goods, but that is true. Begin with five smoke-aroma fully cooked boneless hams. Remove hams from wrappers and cut in chunks, each chunk roughly the size of a Bic cigarette lighter. Set aside. <laughs> Next, take 13 15-ounce cans of Trappi's Black Eye Peas, flavored with slab bacon. Open and set aside. Next, Brown 30 pounds of Oscar Mayer's Little Smokies, which are very good bite-sized smoked sausages. Tearing open the packages is tiresome, but you can usually get children to do this for you. (laughs) In the same fat, make a roux by stirring in 10 pounds of gold metal all-purpose flour. This gives you approximately 12 pounds of roux, flour plus oil. Set aside, next, into some gallons of water in huge, immense pots on four, six-burner stoves, pour any number of cans of Progresso peeled tomatoes, Italian style with basil. Pomodoro, Palati Tipo, Italiano con Basilico. If you use the larger cans, you have fewer cans to open. Add 48 cloves of chopped elephant garlic, which is sold in little net bags from Frida of California, and has a subtle explosiveness that is piquant. By now, you will be slightly confused as you look around at the mighty forces you have mustered, but everything is easier than it looks. You must understand that we don't like to get this involved either, but... Maybe it's your daughter's wedding or something, and you have the choice of giving the whole problem over to some unreliable caterer who'll just supply some pink frou-frou on lettuce leaves at a horrible price per head, or doing it yourself with your accustomed Allah and goodwill. Place a half pound of the roux into each pot, paddle it around in there until the liquid has achieved a rich, dark brown color, then add the ham sausages, and black eye peas. Simmer for some time, you are doing just fine. <laughs> pork is the motif which has up to now dominated the mix, and the pork has to have a contrasting flavor. The only thing to do is to slug in five Maple Leaf Farms frozen ducklings. <laughs> Defrost and cut up ducks, brown quickly, in Luana 100% pure and natural peanut oil, Home office, Opelousas, Louisiana. Place in pots and let simmer for one hour. Salt, Morton. Pepper, Lowry's. And parsley, your 24 pots. All to hell, and you are ready to serve. About 20 pounds of sliced onions would be a good addition, although they probably should have gone in earlier. If you want to know something to call this superb meal, you could probably call it a burgoo. I would like to acknowledge input for this recipe from the Arkansas Department of Corrections Food Services Division. (laughs) For other excellent recipes involving American canned goods, my 64-page leaflet is available upon request. But I am not trying to sell the leaflet, only to stress an appropriate respect and love for the American canned good, which is not, and never will be, Japanese. Thank you.
1: Nate Cordry performed Three Great Meals by Donald Barthelme. My name is Roxanne Gay. The story was published in 1987, and, aside from its general hilarity, is like a time capsule of American brands and prices. Cheddar cheese for $2.99? Can you even imagine it? If you follow me on Instagram, you may know I am an avid home cook. During the pandemic, with so much time at home, I have had an opportunity for the first time in years to spread my culinary wings, making things like beef bourguignon or orange chicken or a fresh herb panzanella. Then, of course, there is the baking, challah, bagels, layer cakes, croissants, which I have yet to master. It's a total nightmare. My go-to dish when entertaining is chicken milanese, a lightly breaded, pan-fried chicken breast, which is my wife Debbie's favorite dish. It comes out beautifully most of the time and makes me feel like I am a far better cook than I actually am. Our next story could not be more different. In Simple Recipes, author Madeline Thien weaves together evocative memories of traditional meals prepared by her father with more complex images of a family in conflict. Tian is a Canadian short story writer and novelist whose work reflects the role of Asian communities in a changing society. Simple Recipes is the title story of her debut collection. Her novel, Do Not Say We Have Nothing, was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. Simple Recipes is performed by Cindy Chung. Chung is a founding member of Mr. Miyagi's Theatre Company. Her work includes roles in Lady in the Water and Children of Invention. And, because we love a family connection, it's nice to note that her solo show, Speak Up Connie, was directed by our friend and frequent reader, B.D. Wong. Here she is with Simple Recipes.
3: There is a simple recipe for making rice. My father taught it to me when I was a child. Back then, I used to sit up on the kitchen counter watching him, how he sifted the grains in his hands, sure and quick removing pieces of dirt or sand, tiny imperfections. He swirled his hands through the water and it turned cloudy. When he scrubbed the grains clean, the sound was as big as a field of insects. Over and over, my father rinsed the rice, drained the water, then filled the pot again. The instructions are simple. Once the washing is done, you measure the water this way, by resting the tip of your index finger on the surface of the rice. The water should reach the bend of your first knuckle. My father did not need instructions or measuring cups. He closed his eyes and felt for the water line. Sometimes I still dream my father, his bare feet flat against the floor, standing in the middle of the kitchen. He wears old buttoned shirts and faded sweatpants drawn at the waist. Surrounded by the gloss of the kitchen counters, the sharp angles of the stove, the fridge, the shiny sink, he looks out of place. This memory of him is so strong, sometimes it stuns me, the detail with which I can see it. Every night before dinner, my father would perform this ritual, rinsing and draining, then setting the pot in the cooker. When I was older, he passed this task on to me, but I never did it with the same care. I went through the motions, splashing the water around, jabbing my finger down to measure the water level. Some nights, the rice was a mushy gruel. I worried that I could not do so simple a task right. "'Sorry,' I would say to the table, my voice soft and embarrassed. In answer, my father would keep eating, pushing the rice into his mouth as if he never expected anything different, as if he noticed no difference between what he did so well and I so poorly. He would eat every last mouthful, his chopsticks walking quickly across the plate. Then he would rise, whistling, and clear the table, every motion so clean and sure I would be convinced by him that all was well in the world.' My father is standing in the middle of the kitchen. In his right hand, he holds a plastic bag filled with water. Caught inside the bag is a live fish. The fish is barely breathing, though its mouth opens and closes. I reach up and touch it through the plastic bag, trailing my fingers along the gills, the soft, muscled body pushing my finger over top the eyeball. The fish looks straight at me, flopping sluggishly from side to side. My father fills the kitchen sink. In one swift motion, he overturns the bag and the fish comes sailing out with the water. It curls and jumps. We watch it closely, me on my tiptoes, chin propped up on the counter. The fish is the length of my arm from wrist to elbow. It floats in place, brushing up against the sides of the sink. I keep watch over the fish while my father begins the preparations for dinner. The fish folds its body, trying to turn or swim, the water nudging over top. Though I ripple tiny circles around it with my fingers, the fish stays still, bobbing side to side in the cold water. For many hours at a time, it was just the two of us. While my mother worked and my older brother played outside, my father and I sat on the couch, flipping channels. He loved cooking shows. We watched Walk with Yan, my father passing judgment on Yan's methods, I was enthralled when Yan transformed orange peels into swans. My father sniffed. I can do that, he said. You don't have to be a genius to do that. He placed a sprig of green onion in water and showed me how it bloomed like a flower. I know many tricks like this, he said, much more than Yan. Still, my father made careful notes when Yan demonstrated Peking duck. He chuckled heartily at Yan's punning. Take a walk on the wild side. Ha ha! my father laughed, his shoulders shaking. Walk on the wild side. In the mornings, my father took me to school. At three o'clock, when we came home again, I would rattle off everything I learned that day. The brachiosaurus, I informed him, eats only soft vegetables. My father nodded. That is like me. Let me see your forehead. We stopped and faced each other in the road. You have a high forehead, he said, leaning down to take a closer look. All smart people do. I walked proudly, stretching my legs to match his steps. I was overjoyed when my feet kept time with his, right, then left, then right, and we walked like a single unit. My father was the man of tricks, who sat for an hour mining a watermelon with a circular spoon who carved the rind into a castle. My father was born in Malaysia, and he and my mother immigrated to Canada several years before I was born, first settling in Montreal, then finally in Vancouver. While I was born into the persistence of the Vancouver rain, my father was born in the wash of a monsoon country. When I was young, my parents tried to teach me their language, but it never came easily to me. My father ran his thumb gently over my mouth, his face kind, as if trying to see what it was that made me different. My brother was born in Malaysia, but when he immigrated with my parents to Canada, the language left him. Or he forgot it, or he refused it, which is also common. And this made my father angry. How can a child forget a language? he would ask my mother. It is because the child is lazy, because the child chooses not to remember. When he was 12 years old, my brother stayed away in the afternoons. He drummed the soccer ball up and down the back alley, returning home only at dinnertime. During the day, my mother worked as a sales clerk at the Woodward's store downtown in the building with the red revolving W on top. In our house, the ceilings were yellowed with grease. Even the air was heavy with it. I remember that I loved the weight of it, the air that was dense with the smell of countless meals cooked in a tiny kitchen, all those good smells jostling for space. The fish in the sink is dying slowly. It has a glossy sheen to it as if its skin is made of shining minerals. I want to prod it with both hands, its body tense against the pressure of my fingers. If I hold it tightly, I imagine I will be able to feel its fluttering heart. Instead, I lock eyes with the fish. You're feeling very sleepy, I tell it. You're getting very tired. Beside me, my father chops green onions quickly. He uses a cleaver that he says is older than I am by many years. The blade of the knife rolls forward and backward, loops of green onion gathering in a pyramid beside my father's wrist. When he is done, he rolls his sleeve back from his right hand, reaches in through the water, and pulls the plug. The fish in the sink floats, and we watch it in silence. The water level falls beneath its gills, beneath its belly. It drains and leaves the sink dry. The fish is lying on its side— mouth open and its body heaving. It leaps sideways and hits the sink, then up again. It curls and snaps, lunging for its own tail. The fish sails into the air, dropping hard. It twitches violently. My father reaches in with his bare hands. He lifts the fish out by the tail and lays it gently on the counter. While holding it steady with one hand, he hits the head with the flat of the cleaver. The fish falls still, and he begins to clean it. In my apartment, I keep the walls scrubbed clean. I open the windows and turn the fan on whenever I prepare a meal. My father bought me a rice cooker when I first moved into my own apartment, but I use it so rarely it stays in the back of the cupboard, the cord wrapped neatly around its belly. I have no longing for the meals themselves, but I miss the way we sat down together, our bodies leaning hungrily forward while my father, the magician, unveiled plate after plate. We laughed and ate, White steam fogging my mother's glasses until she had to take them off and lay them on the table. Eyes closed, she would eat. Crunchy vegetables gripped in her chopsticks, the most vivid green. My brother comes into the kitchen, and his body is covered with dirt. He leaves a thin trail of it behind as he walks. The soccer ball, muddy from outside, is encircled in one arm. Brushing past my father, his face is tense. Beside me, my mother sprinkles garlic onto the fish. She lets me slide one hand underneath the fish's head, cradling it, then bending it backwards so that she can fill the fish's insides with ginger. Very carefully, I turn the fish over. It is firm and slippery and beaded with tiny, sharp scales. At the stove, my father picks up an old teapot. It is full of oil, and he pours the oil into the wok. It falls in a thin ribbon. After a moment, when the oil begins crackling, he lifts the fish up and drops it down into the wok. He adds water, and the smoke billows up. The sound of the fish frying is like tires on gravel, a sound so loud it drowns out all other noises. Then my father steps out from the smoke. Spoon out the rice, he says, as he lifts me down from the counter. My brother comes back into the room, his hands muddy and his knees the color of dusty brick. His soccer shorts flutter against the backs of his legs. Sitting down, he makes an angry face. My father ignores him. Inside the cooker, the rice is flat like a pie. I push the spoon in, turning the rice over, and the steam shoots up in a hot mist and condenses on my skin. While my father moves his arms delicately over the stove, I begin dishing the rice out, first for my father, then my mother, then my brother, then myself. Behind me, the fish is cooking quickly. In a crockery pot, my father steams cauliflower, stirring it round and round. My brother kicks at a table leg. What's the matter, my father asks. He is quiet for a moment, then he says, Why do we have to eat fish? You don't like it? My brother crosses his arms against his chest. I see the dirt lining his arms, dark and hardened. I imagine chipping it off his body with a small spoon. I don't like the eyeball there. It looks sick. My mother tuts. Her name tag is still clipped to her blouse. It says Woodward's, and then Sales Clerk. Enough, she says, hanging her purse on the back of the chair. Go wash your hands and get ready for supper. My brother glares, just for a moment. Then he begins picking at the dirt on his arms. I bring plates of rice to the table. The dirt flies off his skin, speckling the tablecloth. Stop it, I say crossly. Stop it, he says, mimicking me. Hey! My father hits his spoon against the counter. It pings high-pitched. He points at my brother. No fighting in this house. My brother looks at the floor, mumbles something, and then shuffles away from the table. As he moves farther away, he begins to stamp his feet. Shaking her head, my mother takes her jacket off. It slides from her shoulders. She says something to my father in the language I can't understand. He merely shrugs his shoulders. And then he replies, and I think his words are so familiar, as if they are words I should know, as if maybe I did know them once, but then I forgot them. "'The language that they speak is full of soft vowels, "'words running together so that I can't make out the gaps "'where they pause for breath. "'My mother told me once about guilt. "'Her own guilt she held in the palm of her hands, like an offering. "'But your guilt is different,' she said. "'You do not need to hold on to it. "'Imagine this,' she said, her hands running along my forehead, "'then up into my hair. "'Imagine.' she said. Picture it, and what do you see? A bruise on the skin, wide and black. A bruise, she said. Concentrate on it. Right now, it's a bruise, but if you concentrate, you can shrink it, compress it to the size of a pinpoint, and then, if you want to, if you see it, you can blow it off your body like a speck of dirt. She moved her hands along my forehead. I tried to picture what she said, I pictured blowing it away like so much nothing, just these little pieces that didn't mean anything, this complicity that I could magically walk away from. She made me believe in the strength of my own thoughts, as if I could make appear what had never existed, or turn it around, flip it over so many times you just lose sight of it. You lose the tail end and the whole thing disappears into smoke. My father pushes at the fish with the edge of his spoon. Underneath, the meat is white and the juice runs down along the side. He lifts a piece and lowers it carefully onto my plate. Once more, his spoon breaks the skin. Gingerly, my father lifts another piece and moves it toward my brother. I don't want it, my brother says. My father's hand wavers. Try it, he says, smiling. Take a walk on the wild side. No. My father sighs and places the piece on my mother's plate. We eat in silence, scraping our spoons across the dishes. My parents use chopsticks, lifting their bowls and motioning the food into their mouths. The smell of food fills the room. Savoring each mouthful, my father eats slowly, head tuned to the flavors in his mouth. My mother takes her glasses off, the lenses fogged, and lays them on the table. She eats with her head bowed down as if in prayer. Lifting a stem of cauliflower to his lips, my brother sighs deeply. He chews, and then his face changes. I have a sudden picture of him drowning, his hair waving like grass. He coughs, spitting the mouthful back onto his plate. Another cough, he reaches for his throat, choking. My father slams his chopsticks down on the table. In a single movement, he reaches across, grabbing my brother by the shoulder. I have tried, he is saying. I don't know what kind of son you are to be so ungrateful. His other hand sweeps by me and bruises into my brother's face. My mother flinches. My brother's face is red and his mouth is open. His eyes are wet. Still coughing, he grabs a fork, tines, aimed at my father, and then in an unthinking moment, he heaves it at him. It strikes my father in the chest and drops. I hate you. You're just an asshole. You're just a fucking asshole My brother holds his plate in his hands. He smashes it down and his food scatters across the table. He is coughing and spitting. I wish you weren't my father. I wish you were dead. My father's hand falls again, this time pounding downwards. I close my eyes. All I can hear is someone screaming. There is a loud voice. I stand awkwardly, my hands covering my eyes. Go to your room. My father says, his voice shaking. And I think he is talking to me, so I remove my hands. But he is looking at my brother. And my brother is looking at him, his small chest heaving. A few minutes later, my mother begins clearing the table, face weary as she scrapes the dishes one by one over the garbage. I move away from my chair, past my mother, onto the carpet, and up the stairs. Outside my brother's bedroom, I crouch against the wall. When I step forward and look, I see my father holding the bamboo pole between his hands. The pole is smooth. The long grains, fine as hair, are pulled together at intervals, jointed. My brother is lying on the floor as if thrown down and dragged there. My father raises the pole into the air. I want to cry out. I want to move into the room between them, but I can't. It is like a tree falling, beginning to move, A slow arc through the air. The bamboo drops silently. It rips the skin on my brother's back. I cannot hear any sound. A line of blood edges quickly across his body. The pole rises and again comes down. I am afraid of bones breaking. My father lifts his arms once more. On the floor, my brother cries into the carpet, pawing at the ground. His knees folded into his chest, the crown of his head burrowing down. His back is hunched over, and I can see his spine, little bumps on his skin. The bamboo smashes into bone, and the scene in my mind bursts into a million white pieces. My mother picks me up off the floor, pulling me across the hall into my bedroom, into bed. Everything is wet the sheets, My hands, her body, my face, and she soothes me with words I cannot understand because all I can hear is screaming. She rubs her cool hands against my forehead. Stop, she says. Please stop. But I feel loose, deranged, as if everything in the known world is ending right here. In the morning, I wake up to the sound of oil in the pan and the smell of French toast. I can hear my mother bustling around, putting dishes in the cupboards. No one says anything when my brother doesn't come down for breakfast. My father piles French toast and syrup onto a plate, and my mother pours a glass of milk. She takes everything upstairs to my brother's bedroom. As always, I follow my father around the kitchen. I track his footprints, follow behind him, and hide in the shadow of his body. Every so often, he reaches down and ruffles my hair with his hands. We cast a spell, I think. The way we move in circles— How he cooks without thinking, because this is the task that comes to him effortlessly. He smiles down at me, but when he does this, it somehow breaks the spell. My father stands in place, hands dropping to his sides as if he has forgotten what he was doing mid-motion. On the walls, the paint is peeling, and the floor, unswept in days, leaves little pieces of dirt stuck to our feet. My persistence, I think, my unadulterated love confuse him. With each passing day, he knows I will find it harder to ignore what I can't comprehend, that I will be unable to separate one part of him from another. The unconditional quality of my love for him will not last forever, just as my brothers did not. My father stands in the middle of the kitchen, unsure. Eventually, my mother comes downstairs again and puts her arms around him and holds him, whispering something to him words that to me are meaningless and incomprehensible. But she offers them to him sound after sound in a language that was stolen from some other place until he drops his head and remembers where he is. Later on, I lean against the door frame upstairs and listen to the sound of a metal fork scraping against a dish. My mother is already there, her voice rising and falling. She is moving the fork across the plate, "'offering my brother pieces of French toast. "'I move towards the bed, the carpet scratchy, "'until I can touch the wooden bed frame with my hands. "'My mother is seated there, and I go to her, "'reaching my fingers out to the buttons on her cuff "'and twisting them over to catch the light. "'Are you eating?' I ask my brother. "'He starts to cry. "'I look at him, his face half-hidden in the blankets. "'Try and eat.' my mother says softly. He only cries harder, but there isn't any sound. The pattern of sunlight on his blanket moves with his body. His hair is pasted down with sweat, and his head moves forward and backward like an old man's. At some point, I know my father is standing at the entrance of the room, but I cannot turn to look at him. I want to stay where I am, facing the wall. I'm afraid that if I turn around and go to him, I will be complicit accepting a portion of guilt, no matter how small that piece. I do not know how to prevent this from happening again, though now I know, in the end, it will break us apart. This violence will turn all my love to shame and grief. So I stand there, not looking at him or my brother. Even my father, the magician, who can make something beautiful out of nothing, he just stands and watches. A face changes over time it becomes clearer. In my father's face, I have seen everything pass. Anger that has stripped it of anything recognizable, so that it is only a face of bones and skin. And then, at other times, so much pain that it is unbearable, his face so full of grief it might dissolve. How to reconcile all that I know of him and still love him? For a long time, I thought it was not possible. When I was a child... I did not love my father because he was complicated, because he was human, because he needed me to. A child does not know yet how to love a person that way. How simple it should be. Warm water running over, the feel of the grains between my hands, the sound of it like stones running along the pavement. My father would rinse the rice over and over, sifting it between his fingertips, searching for the impurities pulling them out a speck barely visible resting on the tip of his finger. If there were some recourse, I would take it. A cup full of grains in my open hand, a smoothing out, finding the impurities, then removing them piece by piece, and then to be satisfied with what remains. Somewhere in my memory, a fish in the sink is dying slowly. My father and I watch as the water runs down.
1: That was Simple Recipes by Madeline Thien, read by Cindy Chung. I am Roxanne Gay. Simple Recipes is such an elegant short story. It's about the intimate and loving relationship between a father and daughter as she watches him cook. How some of the best dishes are so simple. But it's also about seeing a parent fall from the grace in which they were held and how to come to terms with that. This gorgeous story is a bittersweet reminder that few things are as simple as they appear. When we return, perfect housewife, perfect meal, perfect surprise. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live and performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back to Selected Shorts. Each week, our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I am Roxanne Gay. We're focusing on food in this show, and we're serving up a classic for our final course. British author Roald Dahl is known for his universally beloved children's books including Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach, and Matilda but he had a somewhat darker, though no less funny, side. Lamb to the Slaughter is a favorite of ours. This tale of a model housewife's response to a marital crisis will make you view your Sunday roast in a whole new light. And to get that subtle combination of good but sly, we called on Catherine O'Hara, an alum of such Christopher Guest mockumentaries as Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show, and A Mighty Wind. She's got a generous list of television credits, too. Right now, we are enjoying her Emmy-winning performance on the television series Schitt's Creek.
4: The room was warm and clean, the curtains drawn, the two table lamps alight, hers and the one by the empty chair opposite. On the sideboard behind her, two tall glasses, soda water, whiskey, fresh ice cubes in the thermos bucket. Mary Maloney was waiting for her husband to come home from work. Now and again she would glance up at the clock, but without anxiety, merely to please herself with the thought that each minute gone by made it nearer the time when he would come. There was a slow, smiling air about her, and about everything she did. The drop of the head as she bent over her sewing was curiously tranquil. Her skin, for this was a 6 month old child, had acquired a wonderful translucent quality. The mouth was soft, and the eyes, with their new placid look, seemed larger, darker than before. When the clock said ten minutes to five, she began to listen, and a few moments later, punctually as always, she heard the tires on the gravel outside, and the car door slamming, the footsteps passing the window, the key turning in the lock. She laid aside her sewing, stood up, and went forward to kiss him as he came in. Hello, darling, she said. Hello, he answered. She took his coat and hung it in the closet. Then she walked over and made the drinks, a strongish one for him, a weak one for herself, and soon she was back again in her chair with the sewing, and he and the other, opposite, holding the tall glass with both his hands, rocking it so the ice cubes tinkled against the side. For her, this was always a blissful time of day. She knew he didn't want to speak much until the first drink was finished, and she, on her side, was content to sit quietly, enjoying his company after the long hours alone in the house. She loved to luxuriate in the presence of this man and to feel, almost as a sunbather feels the sun, that warm male glow that came out of him to her when they were alone together. She loved him for the way he sat loosely in a chair, for the way he came in a door or moved slowly across the room with long strides. She loved the intent far look in his eyes when they rested on her, the funny shape of the mouth, and especially the way he remained silent about his tiredness, sitting still with himself until the whiskey had taken some of it away. Tired, darling? Yes, he said. I'm tired. And as he spoke, he did an unusual thing. He lifted his glass and drained it in one swallow, although there was still half of it, at least half of it left. She wasn't really watching him, but she knew what he had done because she heard the ice cubes falling back against the bottom of the empty glass when he lowered his arm. He paused a moment, leaning forward in the chair. Then he got up and went slowly over to fetch himself another. I'll get it, she cried, jumping up. Sit down, he said. When he came back, she noticed the new drink was dark amber with a quantity of whiskey in it. Darling, shall I get your slippers? No. She watched him as he began to sip the dark yellow drink, and she could see little oily swirls in the liquid because it was so strong. I think it's a shame, she said, that when a policeman gets to be as senior as you, they keep him walking about on his feet all day long. He didn't answer, so she bent her head again and went on with her sewing. But each time he lifted the drink to his lips, she heard the ice cubes clinking against the side of the glass. "'Darling,' she said, "'would you like me to get some cheese? "'I haven't made any supper because it's Thursday.' "'No,' he said. "'If you're too tired to eat out,' she went on, "'it's still not too late. "'There's plenty of meat and stuff in the freezer, "'and you can have it right here and not even move out of the chair.' Her eyes waited on him for an answer, a smile, a little nod, but he made no sign. "'Anyway,' she went on, "'I'll get you some cheese and crackers first.' "'I don't want it,' he said. She moved uneasily in her chair, the large eyes still watching his face. But you must have supper. I can easily do it here. I'd like to do it. We can have lamb chops or pork, anything you want. Everything's in the freezer. Forget it, he said. But darling, you must eat. I'll fix it anyway, and then you can have it or not as you like. She stood up and placed her sewing on the table by the lamp. Sit down, he said, just for a minute. Sit down. It wasn't until then that she began to get frightened. Go on, he said. Sit down. She lowered herself back slowly into the chair, watching him all the time with those large, bewildered eyes. He had finished the second drink and was staring down into his glass, frowning. Listen, he said, I've got something to tell you. What is it, darling? What's the matter? He had now become absolutely motionless and he kept his head down so that the light from the lamp beside him fell across the upper part of his face, leaving the chin and mouth in shadow. She noticed there was a little muscle moving near the corner of his left eye. This is going to be a bit of a shock to you, I'm afraid, he said, but I've thought about it a good deal and I've decided the only thing to do is to tell you right away. I hope you won't blame me too much. And he told her. It didn't take long, four or five minutes at most, and she sat very still through it all, watching him with a kind of dazed horror as he went further and further away from her with each word. So there it is, he added. I know it's kind of a bad time to be telling you, but there simply wasn't any other way. Of course, I'll give you money and see you're looked after. There needn't really be any fuss, and I hope not anyway. It wouldn't be very good for my job. Her first instinct was not to believe any of it, to reject it all. It occurred to her that perhaps he hadn't even spoken, that she herself had imagined the whole thing. Maybe if she went about her business and acted as though she hadn't been listening, then later, when she sort of woke up again, she might find none of it had happened. I'll get the supper, she managed to whisper, and this time he didn't stop her. When she walked across the room she couldn't feel her feet touching the floor she couldn't feel anything at all except a slight nausea and a desire to vomit everything was automatic now down the steps to the cellar the light switch the deep freeze the hand inside the cabinet taking hold of the first object it met she lifted it out and looked at it it was wrapped in paper so she took off the paper and looked at it again a leg of lamb all right then they would have lamb for supper she carried it upstairs holding the thin bone end of it with both her hands And as she went through the living room, she saw him standing over by the window with his back to her. And she stopped. For God's sake, he said, hearing her but not turning around. Don't make supper for me. I'm going out. At that moment, Mary Maloney simply walked up behind him. And without any pause, she swung the big frozen leg of lamb high in the air and brought it down as hard as she could on the back of his head. She might just as well have hit him with a steel club. She stepped back a pace, waiting. And the funny thing was that he remained standing there for at least four or five seconds, gently swaying. Then he crashed to the carpet. The violence of the crash, the noise, the small table overturning helped bring her out of the shock. She came out slowly, feeling cold and surprised, and she stood for a while, blinking at the body, still holding the ridiculous piece of meat tight with both hands. All right, she told herself. So I've killed him. It was extraordinary now how clear her mind became all of a sudden. She began thinking very fast. As the wife of a detective, she knew quite well what the penalty would be. That was fine. It made no difference to her. In fact, it would be a relief. On the other hand, what about the child? What were the laws about murderers with unborn children? Did they kill them both, mother and child? Or did they wait until the tenth month? What did they do? Mary Maloney didn't know, and she certainly wasn't prepared to take a chance. She carried the meat into the kitchen, placed it in a pan, turned the oven on high, and shoved it inside. Then she washed her hands and ran upstairs to the bedroom. She sat down before the mirror, tidied her hair, touched up her lips and face. She tried to smile. It came out rather peculiar. <laughs> she tried again. Hello, Sam, she said brightly, aloud. The voice sounded peculiar too. I want some potatoes, please, Sam. Yes, and I think I can a piece. That was better. Both the smile and the voice were coming out better now. She rehearsed it several times more. Then she ran downstairs, took her coat, went out the back door, down the garden, into the street. It wasn't six o'clock yet, and the lights were still on in the grocery shop. "Hello, Sam," she said brightly, smiling at the man behind the counter. Well, "Good evening, Miss Maloney. How are you?" "I want some potatoes, please, Sam. Yes, and I think a can of peas." The man turned and reached up behind him on the shelf for the peas. "Patrick's decided he's tired and doesn't want to eat out tonight," she told him. "We should go out Thursdays, you know. And now he's caught me without any vegetables in the house." "Well, then, how about meat, Miss Maloney?" "No, I've got meat. Thanks. I've got a nice leg of lamb from the freezer." "Oh." I don't much like cooking it Frozen Sam, but I'm taking a chance on it this time. You think it'll be all right? Personally, the grocer said, I don't believe it makes any difference. You want these potatoes? Oh, fine. Yes, that'll be fine. Two of those. Anything else? The grocer cocked his head on one side, looking at her pleasantly. How about afterwards? What are you going to give him afterwards? <laughs> well, what would you suggest, Sam? The man glanced around his shop. Mm, how about a nice big slice of cheesecake? I know he likes that. Perfect, she said. He loves it. And when it was all wrapped and she had paid, she put on her brightest smile and said, Thank you, Sam. Good night. Good night, Miss Maloney. And thank you. And now, she told herself, as she hurried back, all she was doing now, she was returning home to her husband, and he was waiting for a supper, and she must cook it good and make it as tasty as possible, because the poor man was tired. And if, when she entered the house, she happened to find anything unusual, (laughs) or, or tragic, or terrible, then naturally it would be a shock and she'd become frantic with grief and horror. Mind you, she wasn't expecting to find anything. (laughs) She was just going home with the vegetables, and this is Patrick Maloney going home with the vegetables on Thursday evening to cook supper for her husband. That's the way she told herself, do everything right and natural. Keep things absolutely natural, and there'll be no need for any acting at all. Therefore, when she entered the kitchen by the back door, she was humming a little tune to herself and smiling. Patrick, she called, how are you, darling? She put the parcel down on the table and went through into the living room, And when she saw him lying there on the floor with his legs doubled up and one arm twisted back underneath his body, it really was rather a shock. All the old love and longing for him welled up inside her and she ran over to him, knelt down beside him and began to cry her heart out. It was easy. No acting was necessary. A few minutes later, she got up and went to the phone. She knew a number of the police station and when the man at the other end answered, she cried to him, quick, come quick, Patrick's dead. Who's speaking? "'Mrs. Maloney, Mrs. Patrick Maloney!' "'You mean Patrick Maloney's dead?' "'I think so,' she sobbed. "'He's lying on the floor, and I think he's dead!' "'Be right over,' the man said. The car came very quickly, and when she opened the front door, two policemen walked in. She knew them both, she knew nearly all the men at that precinct, and she fell right into Jack Noonan's arms, weeping hysterically. He put her gently into a chair, then went over to join the other one, who was called O'Malley, kneeling by the body. "'Is he dead?' she cried. "'I'm afraid he is.' "'What happened?' Briefly, she told her story about going out to the grocer and coming back to find him on the floor. While she was talking, crying and talking, Noonan discovered a small patch of congealed blood on the dead man's head. He showed it to O'Malley, who got up at once and hurried to the phone. Soon, other men began to come into the house. First a doctor, then two detectives, one of whom she knew by name. Later, a police photographer arrived and took pictures, and a man who knew about fingerprints. There was a great deal of whispering and muttering beside the corpse, and the detectives kept asking her a lot of questions but they always treated her kindly. She told her story again, this time right from the beginning when Patrick had come in and she was sewing and he was tired, so tired he hadn't wanted to go out for supper. She told how she'd put the meat in the oven. It's there now, cooking. And how she'd slipped out to the grocer for vegetables and come back to find him lying on the floor. Which grocer? One of the detectives asked. She told him and he turned and whispered something to another detective who immediately went outside into the street. In 15 minutes he was back with a page of notes and there was more whispering and through her sobbing she heard a few of the whispered phrases. Actually quite normal. Very cheerful. Wanted to give him a good supper. Peas. Cheesecake. (laughs) Impossible the (laughs) cheese." After a while the photographer and the doctor departed and two other men came in and took the corpse away on a stretcher. Then the fingerprint man went away. The two detectives remained and so did the two policemen. They were exceptionally nice to her, and Jack Noonan asked if she wouldn't rather go somewhere else, to her sister's house, perhaps, or to his own wife, who would take care of her and put her up for the night. No, she said. She didn't feel she could move even a yard at the moment. With they mind awfully, she just stayed where she was until she felt better. She, She didn't feel too good at the moment. She really didn't. Then hadn't she better lie down on the bed, Jack Noonan asked. No, she said. She'd like to stay right where she was, in this chair. A little later, perhaps, when she felt better, she would move. So they left her there while they went about their business, searching the house. Occasionally, one of the detectives asked her another question. Sometimes Jack Noonan spoke at her gently as he passed by. Her husband, he told her, had been killed by a blow on the back of the head, administered with a heavy blunt instrument, almost certainly a large piece of metal. (laughs) They were looking for the weapon. The murderer may have taken it with him, but on the other hand, he may have thrown it away or hidden it somewhere on the premises. That's the old story, he said. Get the weapon and you've got your man. Later, one of the detectives came up and sat beside her. Did she know, he asked, of anything in the house that could have been used as a weapon? Would she, would she mind having a look around to see if anything was missing, a very big spanner, for example, or a heavy metal vase? They didn't have any heavy metal vases, she said, or a big spanner. She didn't think they had a big spanner, but there might be some things like that in the garage. The search went on. She knew that there were other policemen in the garden all around the house. She could hear their footsteps on the gravel outside, and sometimes she saw the flash of a torch through a chink in the curtains, it began to get late. Nearly nine, she noticed by the clock of the mantel. The four men searching the room seemed to be growing weary, a, l- a trifle exasperated. Jack, she said the next time Sergeant Noonan went by. Would you mind giving me a drink? Sure, I'll give you a drink. You mean this whiskey? Yes, please, but just a small one. It might make me feel better. He handed her the glass. Why don't you have one yourself, she said. You must be awfully tired. Please do. You've been very good to me. Well... He answered, it's not strictly allowed, but I might take just one drop. Keep me going. One by one, the others came in and were persuaded to take a little nip of whiskey. They stood around rather awkwardly with the drinks in their hands, uncomfortable in her presence, trying to say consoling things to her. Sergeant Noonan wandered into the kitchen, came out quickly and said, look, Miss Maloney, you know that oven of yours is still on and the meat's still inside. Oh, dear me, she cried. So it is. I better turn it off for you, hadn't I? Will you do that, Jack? Thank you so much. When the sergeant returned the second time, she looked at him with her large, dark, tearful eyes. Jack Noonan, she said, yes, would you do me a small favour, you and the others? We can try, Mrs. Maloney. Well, she said, here you all are, and good friends of dear Patrick's too, and helping to catch the man who killed him. You must be terribly hungry by now, because it's long past your supper time, and I know Patrick would never forgive me, God bless his soul, if I allowed you to remain in this house without offering you decent hospitality. Why don't you eat up that lamb that's in the oven? It'd be cooked just right by now. Wouldn't dream of it, Sergeant Noonan said. Please, she begged, please eat it. Personally, I couldn't touch a thing. Certainly not what's been in the house when he was here. But it's all right for you. It'd be a favor to me if you'd eat it up. Then you can go on with your work again afterwards. There was a good deal of hesitating among the four policemen, but they were clearly hungry. And in the end, they were persuaded to go into the kitchen and help themselves. The woman stayed where she was, listening to them through the open door and she could hear them speaking amongst themselves, their voices thick and sloppy because their mouths were full of meat. Have some more, Charlie? No, better not finish it. She wants us to finish it. She said so, be doing her a favor. <laughs> okay then, give me some more. That's a hell of a big club. The guy must've used to hit poor Patrick, one of them was saying. the ox's skull was smashed all to pieces, just like from a sledgehammer. And it ought to be easy to find. Exactly what I say, whoever done it, They're not going to be carrying a thing like that around with them longer than they need. Uh One of them belched. Personally, I think it's right here on the premises. Probably right under our very noses. What do you think, Jack? (laughs) And in the other room, Mary Maloney began to giggle. (laughs) That
1: was Catherine O'Hara performing Road Doll's Lamb to the Slaughter. I'm Roxanne Gay. What's great about this story is how it plays on stereotypes. Our heroine is able to manipulate everyone because they view her as helpless. And when food ceases to mean love, it can become a weapon. Now, if I had to choose food as a weapon, I think I would go for intense heat, a ghost pepper, that slow burn that soon becomes an uncontrollable fire. But I'm not that kind of girl most of the time. So that is our feast, three very different ways in which food, fiction, and family come together. If you've got a good family feast story or a favorite recipe, let us know on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. I'm Roxanne Gay. Thank you for joining me on Selected Shorts.
0: Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Jenny Falcon, and Sarah Montague. Our team includes Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, Mary Shimkin, and Vivienne Woodward. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs, presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles, are recorded by Phil Richards. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation. This program is also made possible with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space. I'm your host, Meg Wallitzer, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. And if you too want to be part of our show, then please check out the Selected Shorts Writing Contest. Every year, one of your favorite writers chooses a lucky winner, and the prizes are, I am in no way biased, amazing. $1,000, publication on electric literature, an actor performing your story at the closing night of selected shorts, and a free writing class with Gotham Writers Workshop.